What really happens in the brain when we prescribe an antidepressant? Is the brain changed forever? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, Idaho, your host. And with me today is Dr. Clint Kiltz. Dr. Kiltz is currently Paul Jansen Professor and Vice Chair for Research for the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you again, Leslie. Uh, Dr. Kiltz, please tell us about your work using neuroimaging to study the changes in our brains during and after the treatment of depression. Yes, this has been one of the, I think, large unresolved mysteries in psychiatry. And you could you could equally argue that understanding how our treatments affect the brain could be um, equally important in studying schizophrenia or depression or drug addiction or developmental disorders like autism. These are all, I think, um, um, problems that are on the table. In and around the problem of depression, We've been long fascinated with this particular disorder in psychiatry because of its its well-recognized debilitating effects and its, its rather high incidence in the general population. Um, and the fact that many of our treatments initially at, at a psychotherapy base focused on depression. And we've actually done quite well in psychotherapy and in the more recent you know, 40 or 50 years have been prescribing with increasing success antidepressants to ameliorate the, the symptoms and disabilities associated with depression. So there's a lot of an impetus to understand how medications or how psychotherapies influence the brain. Typically, the way we've approached this in the past is to be satisfied with understanding the molecular interaction of antidepressants with the brain. In other words, what are the actions of an antidepressant medication with its molecular side of actions? And when we typically studies are proteins called transporters that transport neurotransmitters back into neurons and therefore tightly regulate the temporal course of neural transmission. And many of the antidepressants that we give broadly as medications influence with members of this class of, of proteins, the, the monoamine transporters, those that transport norepinephrine, serotonin, and to a lesser extent dopamine in this matter. This particular level of understanding at the molecular level really only deals with the acute effect. But as most of our listeners know, the therapeutic benefit of, of pharmacotherapy in treating depression is a delayed process. And the probability of therapeutic benefit increases with the duration of treatment. And there's relatively little expectation of significant clinical outcome in the first week or two after initiating therapy, pharmacotherapy. So what we've been up doing more recently is trying to understand what are the longer-term, perhaps more adaptive responses of the brain to these types of medications that we think are more realistically coding of the therapeutic benefit itself. And so these are the basis of a lot of imaging studies. And while I personally don't do you know, a lot of work in imaging mood disorders, many of my colleagues do. As I said, I focus largely in treatment outcomes and addiction and so forth. Mm-hmm. I think one very bright aspect of applying a broad clinical neuroscience to understanding how medications that currently exist influence the brain is that this information is going to be a wonderful framework for us to, divine, to devise and develop new medications that represent significant improvement rather than just small incremental improvements over the currently existing medications, both in the aspect of therapeutic outcome, rate of response, but also in side effect liability. And as we understand more about how these medications change the brain, and I do believe that they do change the brain, we'll have a greater understanding of how new medications 
of much greater efficacy and safety and tolerability can be developed using these new uh, new benchmarks for medication development. Now, we've all seen and certainly used in our, our education of patients and students the nice little diagrams of one neuron talking to the other neuron and the little serotonins not being taken up by the transporters, and, and that's always been the explanation of how medicines like SSRIs work. But clearly, there's more to it than that. What have you learned? Well, yeah, we've all seen those diagrams, and they're very helpful. We've seen the direct-to-consumer programs that focus on this, which I'm very positive on because they, I think at one fundamental level they increase the public's understanding that you know depression and other psychiatric illness is indeed biological. But I guess if you talk about the story of how antidepressants work, what we know now may be really only the first chapter. And the first chapter, as you said, has largely been on these cartoon renderings of neurons talking one to the other, and then a neurotransmitter, in this case serotonin, having a, a key role in the information transfer between these neurons. And then, and this is correct, and most of these medications do block, as I mentioned earlier, the uptake of serotonin back into the neuron, and that initiates a cascade of events that theoretically code therapeutic response. And that cascade has been the, the subject of a lot of work. There has, you know, and this is all my personal bias, but I think probably some of the most interesting work has focused around understanding how areas of the brain, like the limbic association cortex, those areas of frontal cortex, often along the midline and in the ventral part of the frontal cortex, how they code much of the ability of antidepressants to work and even in some cases predict the ability in an individual patient or group of patients to respond to a particular type of an antidepressant. Now, can we look at a medication compared to, say, psychotherapy and what the change difference may be? Yes. Yeah, that's a very uh, rich ongoing area right now, relatively new but a very active area. These have often thought to be competing forms of therapy, pharmacotherapy versus psychotherapy. And the general thought has, and more recently, has been that these two therapies perhaps in combination work quite well and perhaps better than either one alone in many instances. Well, that begs the question of, of what, what is the brain basis by which the interaction of these two therapies enhances the therapeutic outcome. We do believe and have some early evidence that psychotherapy, when it's effective, and pharmacotherapy, when it's effective, do change the brain in different ways, that different areas of the brain respond to psychotherapy versus pharmacotherapy, we talk often with psychotherapy about the top-down approach. In other words, a goal of psychotherapy may be to, to restructure belief systems. As an example, let's say psychotherapy treating a, a mood and a comorbid anxiety disorder. What we want to do here is to try to loosen the belief systems around, say, having a social anxiety disorder or a dysregulated mood and try to provide therapeutic advantages in doing so. Many people believe, and there's early evidence to suggest that this is largely a frontal cortical process, that this is the executive areas of the frontal cortex being instantiated and enabled by psychotherapy, and they in turn drive the perceptual areas that exist in, in many ways at the subcortical domain. Pharmacotherapies are, are thought to have maybe the reverse effect, that they seem to be affecting more the motivational and other aspects aspects of behavior at the subcortical level and influencing cortical activity um, um, in, in a reciprocal way. So in a crude sense, we've got some idea that the 
information exchange between different areas of the brain is differently affected by psychotherapy versus pharmacotherapy. So might you view psychotherapy as top-down and medication treatment as bottom-up? Yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm talking about. The bottom-up approach, uh, I would also argue that pharmacotherapy has some top-down aspects also. But that's generally the way we discriminate those, and that's been kind of the, the guiding theory for hypothesis testing across imaging studies of uh, treatment outcome. Now, is there any way that you can look through neuroimaging to predict or to help us understand those people that don't get better? That's really the, a holy grail issue in psychiatry. I serve as the vice chair for research for my department. We have about 140 faculty. And in that role, I have the opportunity to look at the field and to organize faculty around key problems that I think represent the future of the field. And one of the aspects of the future of the field is to spend more time trying to understand what aspects of the brain code treatment outcomes, to try to work towards something we've talked about for a long time, the individualized regimen of treatment. Each patient that presents, even with a common diagnosis, is distinct in many ways from other patients that present with that diagnosis. And how do we optimize treatment plans, particularly when we have to factor in the therapeutic delay from the initiation of treatment, such that we have a better understanding of who responds to treatment and what characteristics of that individual fit, if you would, a treatment algorithm that we have a greater sense that that the arm of treatment we've chosen is probably going to be most probably effective. So what we've been doing here at Emory, we just initiated a center grant application, which means we have multiple investigators across the department from different disciplines and approaches looking at the ability of genetics and imaging outcomes to predict the responses to two arms of pharmacotherapy versus a psychotherapy arm. And we think this is going to have practical application back to the practitioner in Des Moines and Detroit and so forth that would like to take the information from this type of study and inform their clinical practice. In other words, to provide a better assurance of the choice of a a particular form of treatment to the outcome of that individual patient. And this gets to, I think, a related point of the need defined largely by the National Institute of Mental Health now and other agencies of NIH that our our research be more translational. Mm -hmm. In other words, it be more impacting on clinical practice and not just be of heuristic value to the field. Is there any uh, utility for those of us in in Boise and Des Moines, (laughs) which, by the way, get confused all the time. People say, oh, you live in Des Moines. It's like, no, Des Moines is not in Idaho. Um, It's amazing how many people confuse that. Anyway, is there any utility in using neuroimaging now for us in the the so-called real world? I think not quite yet, and I know you know some of my colleagues may disagree with that. Its uh, value to the field right now is basically informing the boundaries of psychopathology, providing, as I mentioned earlier, a tool that can be used in concert with other methods of observation to provide a, uh, a predictive algorithm for treatment. And in, in another, a third dimension, which I'm, I'm very excited about, which is defining the factors of risk and trying to move by knowing that to early intervention and preventive psychiatry models, which I'd be happy to talk about later. If you take broadly across all three of those areas, imaging right now is, is, is informing each of them, but not yet to the point where I would recommend a clinician to aid diagnosis in psychiatry submit a patient in their care to a brain scan. 
I think that's going to happen sometime in the future, not for all patients, but for select patients, say for to aid differential diagnosis or perhaps to provide further confirming evidence for this particular form of pharmacotherapy versus another form or maybe psychotherapy or the need for combination therapy. Imaging and other aspects of neuroscience will never replace good clinical diagnostic skills, but I think it has the potential to inform much of what we use in terms of treatment strategies and the basis by which we select patients for treatment arms, and hopefully to inform the future of of preventive psychiatry, the future of early intervention models by defining how risk factors impact the brain and lead to diagnoses and perhaps to intervene long before the illness burden occurs. Well, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Kiltz. We've had an interesting discussion today about brain changes uh, during and following treatment. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 